if any, if you all could, if you have a Bible or a device that has the scriptures available, if you could go to Colossians one. Um, last week when Ryan preached, he he quoted from Colossians one, and honestly, Colossians one has been on my heart uh, quite a bit over the last week. Uh, last staff meeting on Monday, we we did this moment of just kind of reflection. It was all in Colossians one, and I and it really began to hit me as I was preparing for this week's message, just pondering all the things that the Lord was putting on my heart, um, the power of this passage of scripture. And so I, I, I want to read it before we get into the message today, because it's going gonna, it's gonna to refer back to some of the truths illustrated here. And I'm going to start at verse 15 in Colossians 1, give you just another moment to get there. Here's what it says. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. I want to say that again. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God, and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil desires. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. A couple things I just want to sit with from that before we go into the rest of this. Uh, Some of the things I want us to keep in the forefront of our mind is the supremacy of Christ. By supremacy, by this, by this concept he, that he holds all things together, all things were created by him and all things are held together in him. Uh, one of the things that I, I know that my heart is often pulled uh, to believe wrongly is that for some reason God is reacting to the things in the world that are happening. That somehow my decisions or the decisions and the brokenness of this world or the circumstances are somehow outside of the of the supremacy of Christ. And something that I want to settle into our hearts first and foremost this morning as we begin to approach this message and and what I believe the Lord wants to say and do in us through this message today is that, that Christ is supreme, that he holds everything together by his hand, that not a thing happens on earth or in the heavens or around us that he doesn't know and that he does not have authority over. Now, when I say that, I know that immediately there are some things that from our own baggage and our own histories, I know mine, my own baggage and history in, in, in religion and in the church, there are some things that come to mind when I say that, that I feel like we, we do a lot of trying to untangle here, but I'll do it again, is that authority and control are not the same thing. By that, I mean that when it says that Christ sustains all things, he doesn't, you know, in the world that we live in, in the fallen world that we live in, Christ does not make us sin and he does not purpose sin to happen. 
And so when we, when we try to approach this idea that Christ is supreme, that he, he maintains and sustains all things, sometimes what can settle into our heart is that God intends for evil or that he intends bad things to happen. You know, I've even been in churches, many of you know, I travel the country and I speak and I share my testimony. And I've had people come up to me and say, oh, you know, God really did intend for you to be abused and for you to go through the things you went through so that you would have a good testimony. And as much as I think we can all recognize that God does not intend that to happen, there is this weird, subtle things that, hap- that happens in our hearts when we start wrestling through the supremacy and the sovereignty of God, where we start, even if we don't logically believe it, somewhere in our heart and affections, we start, I don't know, making room for that wrong belief to happen as if, the bad, as if God needs bad things to happen in order to accomplish his will. And that's not the truth. And even, you know, as we'll get here in a few minutes, even in the stories that we retell in this Christmas season, subtly, I think the enemy has shifted us to believe some of that, even in the narrative of Christ's birth. And we're going to dismantle some of that this morning. But what I want to say to us and, and, and ask for your agreement with this morning is, regardless of what you've experienced in this life, because we all have experienced pain, we all have experienced the consequences of our own sin or the sins committed in this world against us that have affected us, but can we all agree this morning that God intends good? That God does not intend for sin to enter our lives. That he never wanted pain or death or destruction or selfishness or any of that to be a part of our story. But it did become part of our story. And can we settle in our hearts and minds that God being supreme, that he holds all things together, that he sustains all things, that he also then reconciles all things to himself, which means that God knows And God understands the brokenness that has affected us, but part of his supremacy is to take those things and turn them for our good, like we sang about this morning. That he didn't intend the bad, but he will take the bad and he will turn it for our good. That even in the things that feel like they are the most destructive and the most painful, God who did not do it will work it for our good. Can we agree to that this morning? Okay, good. Because I will come down there. You know, last week, Ryan preached a pretty amazing message. And it jacked me up all week long, I'm going to tell you. I had a plan for this morning that Ryan ruined. He ruins a lot of my plans. I'm going to tell you this right now. Like, I have a lot of student loans. The rapture was my repayment plan for that. And then he ruined that with his message on the end times. And I'm like, Ryan. And, you know, I don't know if you know this, but years ago, my family was living in Portland. We were minding our own business. And then Ryan ruined our lives and moved us down here. Um, So Ryan ruins a lot of things with his godly preaching. So, um, so Ryan kind of jacked me up this week. And one of the things he said, you know, God, you know, we're in this series of, of God with us, which we do every year, but every year is just a little bit different take on it each year. And, and when he preached last week, he said, God with us, he is our foundation in the storm and not your typical Christmas message, but really incredibly profound 
And in the course of, of preaching, he, he said this. He said, you are with me in pain. You are with me in the things that have been shaken. You are with me in my grief. You are with me in all of it. And he is, he is with us in all of it. God with us, Emmanuel, God made flesh, making his dwelling among us, putting on flesh, putting on humanity and walking among us. That is the God that, that is so familiar with our humanity and with our struggles. He is truly with us. That's why the scriptures refer to the great high priest who we have, who is not unfamiliar with our temptations or struggles, that we can go to a God that gets us because he is with us. And that Christ, as he walked in flesh, was with us. When he returned to the Father, he sent the Holy Spirit, who is also with us. We are not without God ever. He is with us. He is with you. In whatever you're walking through today, he is with you. He is the foundation in the storm. But Ryan couldn't stop there and leave well enough alone. No, he couldn't. He asked a couple questions, and he ended the message that he gave with this challenge. Is Jesus the foundation of my life? Is everything that I have built and am building sourced in him? That is not really a fair question because it's kind of a no-brainer answer of no. <laughs> no. I wish the answer was yes. But if you are like me, and if you listened to that message and you were taking it to heart, you walked out of here going, crap. Anyone else? Oh, come on. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Listen, all of you who were here, she's like, I wasn't here, but yeah. You know, that's the honesty I'm looking for on a Sunday morning. So let me ask you this again. Anyone else, when you listen to those words, if you took them to heart and you pondered it, how many other people, not just me and her who wasn't even here, <laughs> but did the Holy Spirit confront places in our lives where we, in our own humanity, in our own pride, in our own fear, and whatever it is, either present or in the past, we have built stuff that has not been on the foundation of Jesus. Can we acknowledge that this morning? Yes. Good. Not good, but good. I'm going to tell you that that was a challenging question and it messed me up quite a bit this week as I began. I had a whole plan. My message was going to be God with us and I was going to go through like the history of Israel and I was like, God is purposeful in the details. And, and I was going to have this whole like intelligent, which is a stretch for me, but it was going to be this whole historical thing and like, you know, to help us see that God is purposeful and all that. But then I began to realize with that question, how many things in my life I have done trying to put the name of Jesus on it and it's just been my own fear or it's been my own desire to be loved or my own desire to be significant or whatever it is. And, and I had to honestly look at that and even look at like my preparation for the message and go, oh crud, am I doing this because I want to feel smart? Or am I actually letting the Holy Spirit lead? Am I actually giving him authority to use me to speak what maybe people need to hear this morning? Or am I just looking to be impressive? That was super convicting. And so I, I'm going to be honest with you. I sat for quite a while just thinking about this, this message today. And, 
and really kind of surrendering, okay, God, I, 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 I want to partner with that question. In my own heart, in my own life, and for this church, I want to partner with that question. And so the Lord began leading me to a different message. God with us, he is our hope and he is our redemption. He is our hope and he is our redemption. And now I'm going to get a little Christmassy on you. Luke 2. Let's go to Luke 2. Starting at verse 8. We are probably very familiar, if you've breathed during the Christmas season, you're familiar with this passage. And Ryan even mentioned this passage last week. It's It's the announcement of the angel to the shepherds of the birth of Jesus. So let's, let's read through this. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord peered to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Ryan said that God likes to do light shows. And, and truly, the glory of the Lord, if you can imagine, you know, the, the, the night sky turning bright as day, and the glory and the fire of God surrounding this host of the angelic host to announce this to these shepherds in the field. And, you know, obviously they, they follow this up with, you know, the angel saying to them, don't be afraid, which is like, sure. (laughs) Don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. I'm going to pause there. We're going to come back to that. But let's think for a few minutes about how many times we've heard this story. How many live, like, nativity scenes we've all seen. Like, when I was a teenager growing up in my, in my church back in central Washington, we did this thing every year, and we did a live nativity. We had eight scenes in this live drive through nativity. And I'm telling you, like, we did it up big. We had a cast of 100 kids that we would rotate out through these scenes, and the, the nativity, which was just a it wasn't really just the nativity. We were so very holy. We told from creation to the resurrection in these eight scenes, going from the creation of the world to like everything, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the, the, the heavenly host with Jesus. We had sheep. We had horses. Once we had a donkey named Blossom. And we had a camel once. It was great. And we had this rotating group because it was only like 12 degrees during this winter thing. So we had to like dress up the shepherds and they had like their, you know, coats on underneath their shepherd's robes. And, you know, I'm pretty sure that the shepherds did not have thin slate gloves in the biblical times, but, you know, it'd be abuse if we didn't let the kids have the gloves on. So, you know, we just had this whole thing. And the scene with the shepherds and the angel of the Lord, there's one year as a middle schooler, I had to be one of the shepherds. And you literally are for two hours recreating the scene. So you're like... (gasps) (gasps) and then a car leaves and you reset and then you you know and eventually you're just hyperventilating and you're like 
I'm going, I'm going down, you know, and it's just really not a great thing. But I think we've all seen these scenes. We've seen it portrayed in movies. We've seen it portrayed in Christmas specials. We've seen it. And it, and it always kind of plays out in the story, you know, Mary and Joseph, they go to Bethlehem for the census and they're looking for a place to find shelter and there's no room at the inns. And so they have to go out to this little barn with all the sheep and the, you know, everything. And we have this sense when we're telling and watching this story that there's just chaos here or that somehow God is not mindful of them, that somehow they're in this plight that like, where are you, God? Where's your intention here? What's going on? Like, this is, this is risky and this is, you know, unfortunate. And it just feels like they're alone in this plight. And yet we know that God's purpose is in, in it. We know that the prophecies, prophecies have said that, that Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem, that the Messiah was going to be born there. So we have this context of like, God has a plan, but it feels like there's no plan in the retelling of the story. How many of you have experienced that with the Lord where you know intellectually in your spirit, God is, God is working, but I feel abandoned? Anyone? Oh, come on, this half of the room. Really? I'm gonna ask again, because you know me. How many times have you felt like, I know God has a plan, but I feel abandoned? Anyone? Every hand should be up. I don't even know about y'all. So this story plays out like this, and we see it over and over again, and somehow subtly the Christmas message gets diluted with this sense of lack of, of the presence and the guiding of God. And that's a lie. That's a lie. In Micah 4, Micah 4, 8 through 10 says this. This is a prophecy about the birth of Jesus. It says, And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of the enemies. There's this weird little obscure passage of scripture referencing this place called the Tower of the Flock. Let me tell you God's purposes in the birth of Jesus based on the prophecies given and the history here so that we can begin to understand that God has never left us in any of the details that even in the most dire of externally looking circumstances, God has been working and he knows what he's doing. You see, something we have to understand about this whole story, we know, we know the story. Joseph and Mary are from Nazareth. She is pregnant with Jesus. The census comes and they have to go to Bethlehem because Joseph and actually Mary are both from the lineage of King David. And with this census, you have to go back to the land of your forefathers to be counted. So off they go for this census. Bethlehem, so that we understand the geography, Bethlehem is only about five to six miles away from Jerusalem, which is shorter distance between here and Ashland, like half the distance. So when they were heading that direction and heading to Bethlehem, obviously there was 
a crowd of people that were inhabiting this town that Bethlehem normally only housed about 300 people. It was a tiny little town. And of course, with the census, there wasn't room at the inn and Mary was getting ready to give birth. And honestly, part of the story that might not have been included in the narrative, but probably would have been a consideration for the people is that, you know, a woman giving birth in the house would have made the house ceremonially unclean because of the blood shed during birth. And so part of the story might have been, I don't want this woman making my home ceremonially unclean. Go to the stable. But the stable even is a whole different thing that we miss in the telling of the story. The tower of the flock, Midgal Idar. Midgal Idar was the tower of the flock. This was, a, this was a fortification in between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. And this was the stable of the royal house of David. This was the stable and the lands around it that raised the lambs for temple sacrifice. All of the shepherds that were in that particular area were not your ordinary shepherds. They were trained by the Levitical priests for the service of raising the lambs for sacrifice. I want you to think about that for a minute. Because we don't get that detail in our standard little stories or even in the the great Christmas songs that we sing. We don't get the details of the intentionality of God and what he's communicating in what feels like random, difficult circumstances. But when Joseph and Mary entered Bethlehem and they were looking for a place to stay, if they had not been from the line of David, they would have had no permission to go to this particular place. But because they were from the line of David, they had the permission to seek refuge at Migdal Adar. And at Migdal Adar, this place where Micah spoke, and you, O tower of the flock, or Migdal Adar, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. And then, of course, it's talking about this, you know, the imagery of childbirth here. Now, in Migdal Adar, what would happen in the, in the workings of this area, let's take Joseph and Mary out of the equation for a minute and just talk about the shepherds and the, and the function of Migdal Adar. As the shepherds that were out there were raising sheep for the sacrifice, for like the Passover sacrifice or the burnt offerings that offered, they had a process that they went through. Every sacrificial lamb had to be pure and spotless without defect. No broken bones, no, no disease, nothing. And so what would happen is when the shepherds were doing what they called the, the sheeping season, which was right around Passover, they would bring the sheep into the tower to give birth to the lambs for sacrifice. And these shepherds who were trained, practically priestly shepherds, they were trained to inspect the lamb for spot or blemish to know whether or not they were in fact right and good for the sacrifice for the sins of Israel. In this place, when the lamb was born and when they were found to be without spot or blemish, they would wrap them in swaddling clothes and place them in the stone stall or manger so that the high priest could become and inspect the lamb to see if it was right for sacrifice. This was what they did all the time. 
Now come back to the story. Joseph and Mary heading to Bethlehem for the census. No room at the inn. Where do they go? They go to their ancestral right to this place, the tower of the flock, the royal sheepery, for lack of a better term. Is sheepery a word? It is now. The royal sheepery. So there they go. And by the way, this this place would not have been filled with other animals. It would not have been dirty because they needed to keep the lambs born there ceremonially clean. So even the images that we have of like cows and donkeys and heaps of dung and you know, why was Jesus born in the filth? Well, he wasn't born in paradise, but he, this was not the story. The story was that he was born in the place. The perfect spotless lamb of God was born in the place where every other sacrificial lamb was born on purpose. And so we go back to this story with the, with the shepherds out in the field around Migdal Adar. These were the royal shepherds. These were the shepherds that were breeding the lambs for the sacrifice for the sins of the world. These were the shepherds that when the spotless lambs were born, they were wrapped in swad- they wrapped them in swaddling clothes. They put them in the manger for inspection. So when the angel of the Lord appeared to them and said, this will be the sign to you, you will find him wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Do you ever wonder, like it's depicted in every movie I've ever seen that the star somehow appeared and shone its light right down at the manger. God did not need to do that because these shepherds knew exactly where to go. Because they went there every time there was a lamb born for the sacrifice. They went there knowing, knowing exactly what this meant. You know, Ryan said something last week. He actually mentioned that he and I were having a conversation the other day. And he said, oh, I'm good and I'm great. And I'm like, are you? And he's like, no. And... You know, he made this statement that Christmas has this ability to both stir up feelings of joy and celebration, but also difficulty in sadness and grief. And it's, it's true. And I can imagine, can you imagine the feelings of the shepherds as they walked into this place they were familiar with, that they knew the function of this place. They knew the ritual of this place. They knew the commandments surrounding the lambs for sacrifice. And when they walk in, they find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. There's, there's both this sense of incredible joy because the angels of the Lord have told them, behold, great, good news of great joy, a savior is born. But we know from the biblical narratives, we know from even Jesus's own disciples that no one could comprehend the fact that the savior was actually going to be sacrificed like he was. The disciples kept waiting for Jesus to be the conquering ruler, the military ruler. The, you know, so many, they, they, even Herod, when they, they heard news of this prophecy, he was like, oh, a king's going to assert me. They did not understand. But do you know who probably did? Those shepherds. As they walked into that tower, that place, and they saw in place of a lamb, the perfect spotless lamb of God. And knowing what would come for this lamb of God. Can you imagine the joy and the grief commingled in that moment? 
Can you imagine it for Mary and for Joseph? Because I'm certain that in the conversations that probably ensued or the revelations that probably hit as this was happening, which is why it says in the scripture, I'll just read it this. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they'd seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they they had been told. Can you imagine the commingling of grief and joy? Can you imagine Mary's heart? Can you imagine the shepherds, Joseph, all of them, as they're realizing and taking in the magnitude that the intentionality of God to have Jesus born in this place to tell everybody who saw what he had come to do. Why, why, Drew? Why are you focusing on this? Well, because it's important. Thank you. It is. It's important. But it's important for so many reasons. It's important for so many reasons because, you know, I think one of the things we... he he. How many of you have been here a little while? Raise your hand. Okay, come on, everybody. (laughs) If you've been around here for any length of time, you know that we talk a lot about freeing people from religion. And by, okay. Sometimes I struggle knowing how to communicate even that because religion in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with doing right things to worship and honor God. There's nothing wrong with, with... moving our behavior in a way that honors God. But what becomes the problem is when religion becomes what we think redeems us. And something in this story that we need to understand, that we need to see and we need to settle in our hearts today is the redemption that Jesus came to bring us. You know, in this culture, they had been so saturated with religion, so saturated with obedience, so saturated with sacrifice, so saturated in these things because sin had broken them. Sin had broken the world. We know it from the Garden of Eden, from the very beginning of the story. We knew that sin entered the world and it just wrecked our connection with God and it wrecked our own souls and it, and it just played out throughout human history. And no matter how many laws or how many ritualistic cleaning things happened or none of the Ten Commandments and all these things, none of the religion actually healed the heart. None of it, obeying any of it, which no one really could obey at all, that still did not cleanse people from their unrighteousness. And one of the problems we get into sometimes is we, we substitute redemption or religion for redemption. We start trying to be obedient to God as if that will make us clean. It won't. We, we start, you know, maybe praying more, memorizing more scripture. And, you know, I can't tell you how many people I have known over the course of my life who have practically memorized the entire Bible but cannot conquer the sin in their life. That no matter how many good things you do for God, you can't seem to get rid of this feeling of unworthiness. Anyone know what I mean? Because religion becomes destructive when we substitute it for redemption. And the thing that I'm, that I'm 
wanting us to understand this morning and wanting us to get settled deep in our heart. When I say that God with us, he is our hope and he is our redemption. He is our hope because I hope that you see in this story that nothing that happens is without God's mindful care. That even in the, in the reality of the brokenness of our world, God still is moving us towards his redemption. That God still is purposing our, our redemption and our restoration. As Ryan said it last, last week, Christ coming to earth was not a rescue mission. It was a redemption mission. And when we look at this, this story of the birth of Jesus, we have to place it in the context. We have to place it in the context of the sacrificial lamb. We have to go back to Passover. We have to see Jesus' birth in light of Passover. And if you know the story of Passover, you have to go all the way back to Egypt and Moses. And that the lamb was slain, his blood was was put on the, the, the posts with hyssop and that the spirit of the Lord, the angel of the Lord passed over the children of Israel while killing the firstborn of the Egyptians, ultimately surrender, giving them that passage out of slavery and into the promised land through the desert. And then that tradition carried forward throughout the years over and over again, up until the death of Jesus, which happened at Passover. That when Jesus, the night before his betrayal, brought his disciples into the upper room, you can read this in Mark 14, verse 22, he says, and as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and he blessed it and broke it and gave it to them and said, take this, this is my body. And he took the cup and he, had given thanks to the Lord, gave it to them and and they all drank. And he said, and this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. When we think of the story of Jesus's birth in the context of where it happened and the prophecies given, we have to think about it in terms of communion. The very thing that we have sitting on the tables here today it's not, if we just do this out of religion, we miss it. If we do this out of habit, if we do this out of just practice, but we don't really let the meaning settle deep in our hearts, then we miss the message of Christmas. When Jesus was born and wrapped in swaddling clothes and put in the manger and the shepherds came who were the, the, the priestly shepherds inspecting the pure and spotless lamb for the sacrifice, for the forgiveness of sins for the people. And when Jesus on the eve of his crucifixion broke the bread and gave the wine and said, this is my body and this is my blood, he was fulfilling the very thing that he came to do the very thing that the shepherds knew he came to do, shedding his blood for our redemption. If we go back to Colossians, we see it. That's why I started there. Colossians 19, uh, 1.19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or things in heaven, making peace through his blood.
shed on the cross. I love Christmas. I love the season. I love the songs. I love everything about it. But I would give all the joy and all the jingle and all the trees and all the decorations up in a minute if, if to just settle on this reality that Jesus, the perfect lamb, came and shed his blood so that I could be reconciled to God. You know, when Ryan shared last week, have we built things in our lives that haven't been sourced in Jesus? The answer for all of us is yes. And the temptation, even that I experienced this week as I was pondering that question, was, okay, how do I make it right? How do I fix it, God? Anyone else go there in your mind? We can't. You cannot redeem yourself. None of us can redeem ourselves. Only Jesus redeems us. Jesus redeems any person who comes to him. Anyone who comes to him, admitting our sin and surrendering to the good, glorious God who not only is with us, but who died for us and shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Communion is going to be open and I'm going to invite the worship team back up here. They're going to lead us in a time of response. And this is my question for you. In the midst of all the Christmas season and all that we're dealing with, all the things in your life and in my life and all our lives, our, our world, all the stuff floating around us, can we settle on this these two truths, God is always working on our behalf. There is not a detail in our lives that he is not mindful of and orchestrating for our redemption. And it is not your responsibility to redeem yourself. Only Jesus can redeem you. Through his blood, the blood of the perfect spotless lamb, we are redeemed and cleansed. We are made right with God. We are brought back into right relationship with the God who loves us. 1 John 1, 5 says this, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. As we, as we respond in worship today, can I, can I challenge you to do two things? Can I challenge you to let go of your own effort to redeem yourself? And can I challenge you to surrender to the good God who is ready to redeem? And this is not about necessarily salvation. If you believe in Jesus, you're saved. Amen. But in our lives, we all know we can be saved, but we can still be a hot freaking mess. 
And we don't have to be. We don't have to walk around afraid. We don't have to walk around in shame or despair. We don't have to walk around with condemnation nipping at our heels every single day. We don't have to walk around with a sense of dread or failure or overinflated sense of responsibility that we've screwed it up and now we've got to try to fix it. Because we have a God who has done it for us. And if we will just humble ourselves, confess where we've gone wrong and receive his blood to cleanse us and to restore us and to make us right, we can walk in the light. So this morning, Holy Spirit, come and speak to your kids, to your adopted sons and daughters. And even God, if there's, there's some here who haven't been brought into relationship with you yet, but they're hearing this and they're feeling it, the invitation is open to be reconciled right now today. So as we worship, the communion tables are open, not for ritual, not for habit, not because it's what you do sometimes when the little cups of juice and the crappy bread is available, but because we have a pure and spotless lamb who came and died for us so that we would be reconciled to him, the God who loves us, the God who's been working in every detail of our life and will continue to work in every detail in our life, the God who wants to restore us in right relationship and free us from guilt and free us from shame and free us from condemnation and free us from fear and bring us into right relationship with him and empowered in life with him. So friends, whether it's something big and ugly and nasty or just small and seemingly inconsequential, please do not let this day go by. Please do not let this time go by without putting your trust and your hope in the God who redeems. Amen.
Holy Spirit, is there a place in my life that I've tried to redeem on my own? Could be a deep place of hurt where you're like, man, I just can't let that go. I can't stop trying to fix this. It's too important to me. I have felt that deeply. And let's just invite the Holy Spirit into the area. If you can, just visually, can help us, but just hold that in your hands like a cup in front of you. You can even hold it like with a fist, like how, how it really feels like, man, I have to fix this. And in your own time, just say, Holy Spirit, like I give this to you. I surrender this area of my life. I trust you. Let your goodness cover it. Let your redemption cover it. 
You've got this. You've got this. You've got this. So, yeah, just with open hands, just sing this, just surrender this to him. And this is where I'm meant to be. Remind us of 
your nearness and your closeness, Lord. Thank you that you have not abandoned us, God. Thank you that you are with us, God. So I pray that that truth would guard our hearts, Lord, and that joy would be our strength in this season, Lord, that joy and that peace and that trust, knowing, God, man, you are with us, even in those places of pain and the unknown, Lord. So God, we, as we go out through this week and this season, this month, this year, God, we surrender, we surrender, we trust. We trust you with even those areas that are really hard, God. So thank you, God. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your nearness, Lord. Amen. All right, church, have a great week. You can go get your kiddos. Let's go.